Good morning to each of you. The sermon this morning is from <clears throat> Colossians 3, 5 to 17. And uh, that, those songs were a good introduction uh, because the focus here in these verses is on uh, putting off and putting on. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self, and the uh, King James uh, begins verse 5 with the word mortify, which is the idea of um, kill or put to death or deprive of power, which does sound like a battle. Though the question Two questions I have, I'm not going to answer them right now, but is who, who is this new self that, that we are called to put on? Who is this new self? And the second question, how do we put on this new self? We're going to try to think about those two questions as we go along. So, uh, in Colossians 2, this idea of put off, in Colossians 2, 5 to 7, which is not what we're working with this morning, but there Paul contrasts the philosophies and religious systems of men, pagans, and, and even religious people, with, he contrasts that with the wisdom, knowledge, order, and way of life uh, that they have received from Christ. And he says that the person who is rooted and built up in Christ will walk in Christ, and he will live, that person will live an ordered life. So beginning in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, I believe Paul tells us the behavior of a person who has been raised with Christ, what that behavior should look like. So I've decided uh, to divide the uh, verses 5 to 17 into three sections. I want to talk, first of all, about mortify, uh, what it means to deprive evil desires of their power and their expressions. And uh, secondly, I want to talk about the stripping off or putting off of evil behavior. And the third, uh, what, what is this clothing yourself with a new self about? So first of all, deprive of power uh, the evil desires and their expressions. And maybe I should read first of all. I will read from uh, the New King James, beginning uh, verse 5. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Uh, which is uh, presenting a picture of the old self. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, uh, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man, old self, with his deeds. And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the meaning of mortify, uh, it has the idea of to uh, destroy, uh, to, to uh, take away the strength of, destroy the strength of, deprive of power. Uh, other ways of saying it, uh, reckon, count as dead or reckon as dead, which sounds somewhat like a thinking issue, consider as dead. And it's referring, what needs to be deprived of power is of the evil desires and motivations that produce sins, these sins, and also the behavior, the habits of sin themselves. All of this needs to be deprived of power. So this idea of dying, putting to death dying, is introduced in chapter 2, where Paul talks about uh, prior to conversion, you were dead, (laughs) okay? You were already dead, dead in your sins, Paul says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But when Christ circumcised you, 
he circumcised your heart, and you were buried with Christ in that operation of heart circumcision. And Paul says that resulted in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So the picture Paul gives there is there's an operation in the heart at conversion that puts to death whoever we were and the bodily activity of sin that was part of who we were. Now, if you're like I am, when I'm sitting in my study and trying to study about these things, I have all kinds of questions, and it's questions like, oh, okay, what is this operation? How does it happen? When did it happen? I mean, did I experience that? Uh, What did I feel when that happened? I have all these questions, and I don't really have too many answers. I'm just casting about. And maybe that's how you feel when you hear verses like that. And so then that's what it says, Paul says, happens at conversion. And then in 3 5, uh, there's this put to death, deprive of power, motivations, and behavior. So this, this is something more than, in addition to, this thing that, that Christ did in our hearts at conversion. This, this seems to be a step beyond. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, how does this happen? And maybe we're like, well, we don't even understand how that first thing at conversion happened, so how can we understand this? So let's focus a little here on what are we supposed to deprive of power and count as dead. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm putting it in these words. We're supposed to be counting as dead, depriving of power the evil desires in their expressions. Uh, so in the King James, uh, it says in verse 5, mortify therefore your members. And that's a peculiar statement, really, members. And it's talking about, I believe, bodily members. And it's not talking about cut off your arm if it offends you or doesn't behave right. Um, the, the expression here, I think, is uh, members is put in place of the evil desires that are supposed to die, be deprived of power. I believe Paul's focus here is on two things that need to be counted as dead or deprived of power, and one of them is the evil desires that produce these sins, and the other is the sins he mentions here. And of course, I want to add, The sins he mentions here are not exhaustive. They are examples. I think we know this. These are not the only sins that people commit. So it's the evil desires and the expressions of them in in very practical, visible behavior, sins, habits, both of these. So Paul says, reckon as dead deprive of power the evil desires that produce the sins committed 
through parts of one's body, hands, feet, mouth. But he does not, in my judgment, he does not specifically give one, two, three steps of how this happens, how we deprive of power, and that's probably where we tend to get stuck. So I want to just throw this out as something to consider. I believe the process, <clears throat> I kind of hate doing this because it sounds like take these steps and everything is solved, and I don't mean that. But I believe the process looks something like this, that number one, at conversion, at conversion Jesus performs an operation inside us that dies us with himself just like he died on the cross. I think that's the picture in Romans 6. That's a picture in the Bible. So uh, God performs an operation in us that dies us. We don't die ourselves. We don't kill ourselves. This is something God does in us. So that, that's the first step, I think, in the process. And the second one, I think, is what is talked about here, considering or counting as dead what died with Christ. Whatever Christ died on the cross to deliver us from. The second thing that must happen is that we must enter into, in our heart and mind, count as dead whatever Christ died for. And this involves not only intellectually understanding this death with Christ concept. I think it helps if a person at least at least can think the thought that the Bible teaches that I, at conversion, well, first of all, that I died with Christ on the cross in his death. Historically, that's what was happening. And now in my life, I count that to be true. I consider it to be true. I believe it to be true. Uh, I'll just say this, that I think it's really hard in the Christian life to accomplish anything that you can't, I don't know what word you use, conceptualize, you can't envision. It, it has to be something that you see. In, in, <laughs> um, pardon me. It has to be something that you see in your heart's eye. I don't know what else to say. Okay? <clears throat> it includes not only intellectually understanding this, but it includes consciously surrendering evil desires and giving ourselves permission to let the desire die. And I, I think a lot of people get stuck right there that they are so 
familiar with, attached to, the feelings, desires that they have had for so long that they can't give them permission to die. And so they live, they live in control. These evil desires that are talked about here, I believe, are the deeper feelings, inclinations, and motivations. And they might even be God-created desires. I believe they're that, too. Uh, Like physical appetite or sexual desire. Desires that have been allowed Uh, to control one's life, desires that have not been, uh, I'll say, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. And the third thing that has to happen in this process is that we replace evil habits with righteous habits. And I want to be clear that the process that I've described of these three things requires Intention and courage and hard work and daily surrender to Jesus Christ. And it's a lifetime process. And it doesn't just happen to us, except uh, what I said was the first thing that has to happen, that Jesus has to die us to himself. I don't think we do that to ourselves, but we participate in all of these We participate at every step, at every level, by surrender, inviting Jesus, giving him permission, whatever is involved, we participate in. So I want to to elaborate just a little bit here on this idea of deprive of power, the sinful roots of sin. Uh, New attitudes and behavior cannot flourish unless something dies. That, that is just a principle of life. Maybe I should have said a principle of death. Uh, something new cannot, the new self, the new behavior, it cannot, it cannot grow, it cannot flourish unless something dies. Something has to die. And this all might sound uh, firm and... I'm not sure what it'll sound like, but I believe it's true. We have to give up our commitment to our cherished feelings. We all have them. I have them. Everyone does. Mortification is not self-denial or self-control. You might include it, but that's not all it is. It is taking up your cross and following Christ. To follow Jesus means complete devotion that regards personal, selfish desires and ambitions as dead. And these verses, I think, deal with the self-centeredness that is at the heart of selfish expressions. So mortification is the result of union with Christ, Christ, which shifts our focus from pleasing ourselves to pleasing Christ.
Christ. Now, I want to say something about human feelings. Uh, I talk with people. Now, I'm not talking about anybody around here. Okay, just want to be clear about that. It might include people here, but that's not what I'm talking about. I, t- I talk with people, uh, and I talk with people who disciple other people. And I hear them say, several people have told me this in the last several weeks, they say things like, Mennonite youth today, and it shouldn't just be Mennonite youth. There's plenty of people, but they say. Someone told me, several told me, Mennonite youth today in their 20s and 30s are a complete mess. I'm just quoting, that's exact words. Because they are so committed to their feelings and desires and to feeling good that they cannot sacrifice anything for the sake of obedience to Christ. You know, seriously, I am not trying to spank you people. I am not. It's just a challenge. You cannot deprive evil desires or feelings of their power by ignoring them. You can't. But neither can you deprive them of power and count them as dead if they are your God. And I think we all know this. And I'm I'm convinced that much of the ungodly behaviors and lifestyles in our world, and I'm not talking just about Mennonites, much of it is the result of a generation of people having made their feelings their God. They, they have to be true to themselves. I hear this a lot. We have to be true to ourselves, be true to how we feel, be true to who we are, who we feel like we are. And, and people do not know how to bring their feelings under the lordship of Christ. And so one, one way to say that is their feelings are their lord. And, I, you know, we all know that that is not biblical. And I'm not talking about we need to get ourselves perfected about these things. But that's my clarification. So sinful habits, expressions that need to die or be reckoned as dead or be deprived of their power, uh, and so, now let me talk about this a little bit. Uh, habits, habits, we all have them. Uh, whether uh, good habits or bad habits have a life of their own. They can live very well without any conscious thought from a person. They, that's, that's what a habit is. It it just kind of does its own thing. Every thought pattern or feeling pattern or behavior that we engage in without thinking about it is a habit. I'll give an example. I used to have the habit, I think I've said this here maybe, I used to have the habit of shaving. And uh, I won't tell the story about how I decided to stop. 
but I decided to stop. And uh, I hadn't shaved for a week. That's part of the reason I decided to stop. And uh, I was gone from home. That's another reason I decided to stop. I am telling too much of the story. So the next morning, after I decided I wasn't going to shave, when I got up, the first thing I did was reach for my razor. That was not, I didn't even think. I didn't have to think. It's just my body did this. And I reached for it, and I was starting to, like, it got halfway to my face, and I was like, oh, I decided not to shave. And so I put it back. And uh, that happened several mornings. And then I thought to myself, you know, the best thing you could do to help yourself here is just take the thing and put it out of sight. And then the habit wouldn't just happen, you know. So this is habits. It's things, behaviors we engage in without even having to think. Uh, And we have to understand that the thought or feeling or behavior pattern habit we have got that way over a period of time. And it feels normal. And perhaps it even feels right. It, it feels like who we are and what we have to do. It just is what it is. And, and then the difficulty, the challenge in it is that sinful habits can take I'm sorry to have to say this, but they can take as long to replace with a good habit as it took to get the bad one. Uh, I'm sorry, but this can be a challenge to change a habit. So Paul mentions uh, some behaviors here. Fornication, uh, the primary meaning is uh, traffic with harlots, but it has a broader meaning in uh, sexual irregularity in general, various kinds. And I should say, fornication was really a common sin in the world back then. And even, I I believe, I've read that even in in churches, there was a tremendous challenge for people to overcome this pre-conversion habit. And then uncleanness or impurity uh, is a broader term than fornication. Uh, Any kind of misuse of sexual desire. But it's also used of moral evil generally. Um, It's the opposite of being clean. and then inordinate affection, uh, which is the, I think the Greek word is pathos, but uh, lust, intense lust, uncontrollable, uh, dishonorable, evil desires, passion, passions. Evil concupiscence, uh, evil desire for that which is not lawfully yours. It's not yours to have is the idea there. The idea that other people and things, objects, exist for my benefit to be used. And then covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. 
which is an interesting phrase. Uh, it's equated, covetousness is equated with idolatry because it involves setting one's affections on earthly things and not on things above. It's the idea of putting some earthly object of desire in the place of in the place that God should occupy. So that's why it's referred to as idolatry. You replace God with some other thing. Uh, it's replacing worship of God with worship of something else, things or desires. Now, verses uh, 6 and 7, uh, there's two characteristics of these sins. Paul says they incur Christ's wrath. That's one thing. And he says they characterize the pre-Christian experience, and so they are things that need to be put off. So, verses 8 and 9, strip off evil behavior and the old self. And the, the idea of put off, strip off, is the idea of taking off a worn-out garment, something that does not serve you very well anymore. It's too small, it's, it's, it's rotten, uh, it doesn't cover well. There's something about it that doesn't serve the purpose. And uh, that, that's an image that we can have, a concept uh, strip off this thing that really does not fit. It doesn't fit who you are. So he mentions anger and anger and rage. And uh, those two words, in my mind, <laughs> the, the, the meaning of the Greek words, to me, are backwards because... Anger uh, is a deep-seated rage. And the word, King, the King James word, the English word rage, is actually the sudden outburst, the short-fused explosion. So actually, anger is worse than rage, but that's not how we think about it, okay? Just trying to clarify Okay, malice, uh, viciousness that wants to injure others. Blasphemy is uh, slander. To say something about someone that is not true, filthy communication is abusive speech, um, gutter speech, and then lying. Okay, then verses 10 to 17, clothe yourself with new behavior and the new self. So union with Christ means entering into his death and resurrection. And this death relates, first of all, to the primary sin. I'm just recapping. The primary sin of self-centeredness, selfishness, I, me, mine, 
what I feel like I must have. Union with Christ uh, means that we have entered into a different kind of relationship with ourselves in which we're not the Lord and Christ is the Lord. He's Savior and Lord. And then this new self involves a new behavior. So the person who has died and risen with Christ is in the process of becoming a new person. And I think for many, many of us, for me, uh, I was baptized fairly young. I don't know, 11 or 12. I don't know how much I should digress here. I remember sitting over here. probably the first bench, only it was back there. And, um, and I was sitting there realizing that I had not felt any grand internal change. Nothing grand, nothing grand had happened to me, and it bothered me. And literally, I sat there and thought to myself, that maybe when Brother Milton pours water on my head, this will happen. That's what I thought. And it didn't. And I didn't know if that was normal or not. And I didn't have the nerve to ask anybody. All right, so what does this thing mean about becoming a new person? So the new man, the new person, who is this new person? So I want to say that this new person includes the person Christ recreated, died to himself, died with himself when we are converted. And it's not necessarily something, anything you feel or see. This this is a reality that God accomplishes. Uh, The new self is who the believer is because Christ lives in us. And it is also the person, secondly, that we are becoming because we are putting on the new behavior, the new behavior of the new self, the new habits. And so how how is this new person becoming a new person? And uh, it says here, is being renewed in knowledge according to uh, the character of Christ is the idea. So growth toward maturity is rooted in knowledge, in knowing what is right and true. Uh, But knowledge alone, we all know this, is not enough. But we don't grow as a result of ignorance. Okay. What did I just say? We don't grow as a result of ignorance. So it does require knowing, knowing, knowing what God wants, knowing what is true, knowing what is true about myself. But that in itself, knowledge in itself is not enough, but it does require that. 
So this, this knowledge of Christ is rooted in the truth about Christ that is revealed in the text of Scripture. Uh, and it includes the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the presence of Jesus in us, understanding these realities, spiritual realities. In verse 11, the new man has a new way of thinking and relating to people in different classes. I, this verse, verse 11, about the um, Jews and the Greeks and so on, uh, it, it's a little bit like, why is that there? So what we do know is it's talking about different classes of people, people who are different than I am, that there were racial barriers back then, like that between Jew and Gentile, which included religious barriers as well. Uh, cultural barriers that divided Greeks and barbarians, social barriers between slave and free person. And, and Paul is saying that these do not exist among believers. They don't count. They are not something that matters. Everyone is on an equal footing. <clears throat> Sometimes I think things when I'm preaching that I don't know if I should say, but that doesn't mean that there are no longer Jews or no longer Gentiles or no longer men or no longer women. That's not what that means. It means that these differences can be acknowledged and noticed, but they are not what controls our relationship. We do not think less of people because they are different than we are. That's what Paul means. You know, we, are, we are equal in Christ. So clothe yourself with these Christian graces. Put on bowels of mercies, which is talking of sympathy, compassion, um, kindness, which is a generous spirit, uh, gracious spirit, a sweet spirit. Humbleness of mind, of course, humility, the opposite of pride, meekness, uh, willingness to make concessions, uh, the opposite of arrogance, and uh, self-assertion and filled with oneself. Long-suffering, well, to suffer long, to be patient, self-restraint that uh, allows a person to bear injury without retaliation. And then verse 13, forbearing one another, uh, the idea of bearing with the faults and uh, irritants of others. <clears throat> and there actually probably are many of these. If everybody would be like I am, it, it, it would help. If everyone thought like I do, feel like I do, uh, that would help. 
but that's just not how it is, is it? And so we learn, we learn to bear with. And then uh, Paul summarizes all of this with the word love, charity. Godly love is the basis of all Christian virtue. So then there are some general guidelines. Let God's peace be the judge. Uh, when there's peace between people, uh, then we assume that things are okay. And uh, maybe that's what it means. It might also have the idea of if you have peace inside of you, you can know that, that let that be the umpire of whether things are okay. Um, so maybe it's both of these, if, if there's peace between you and someone or peace inside yourself, that, that's the judge. Let God's peace be the judge as to whether our relationships with others is healthy. He says, be thankful, be thankful for God's peace, perhaps, be thankful for people, be thankful um, in general for God's gifts and whatever God is up to. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Uh, Perhaps it means maybe better uh, dwell among you in the body. Let the word of Christ dwell in the body among you. Uh, Give ample opportunity for the gospel message, the truth, the truth of Christ, whatever relates to all of these ideas. Uh, Let those be proclaimed in your meetings. Let the word of Christ be proclaimed, dwell among you, um, abide in you. And teach and admonish each other. This is the way the word of Christ dwells in you, among you. Uh, To teach is to impart positive truth. To admonish is to address that which is wrong. To warn. Uh, And then then the comments about uh, to bless one another with... uh, Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which um, seems to be talking about three types of um, hymns. It's not really the right word. Three types of songs, perhaps. Old Testament psalms, hymns, which are addressed to God, perhaps, and songs, which... Uh, perhaps more experiential uh, address to each other. Not sure what all this means, but it's it's talking about uh, being together and including not only verbal instruction, but singing. Okay, so summary. I'm coming to the end. So Paul has not given a detailed, exhaustive list of rules on how to live. I don't think he has. He has given an example, an outline, a few markers, if you will, if I may use that term. And now he says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, or do everything according to Christ's authority. 
according to how he would do it, the way his followers should live. In light of who you know Christ to be and what I have said, do only what you know Jesus would want you to do. Pray often in this manner, I'm saying. Pray often in this manner, Lord Jesus. Speak to my heart whatever you want me to know, whatever you want me to believe, whatever you want me to do. Speak. Speak into my thoughts and feelings and minister to me in my negative emotions and thoughts. Change me to be and do like yourself. And I'm offering that because I, th I think we all know this. We have to get beyond uh, a technical, what are the three things that I can do or can't do, and spell it out. Uh, we have to get, all of us, have to get beyond that and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And, and of course, that includes being willing to listen. So in everything, give thanks to God. May the Lord bless you.